Whether you have a skin interest, a skin query, a skin trauma, or skin disease, I warmly welcome you to Heal Thy Skin, a podcast brought to you by Derm Health Co. I'm Marnie, dermal clinician, dermoscopist, and your podcast host. Skin is deeper than beauty, and our mission is to build the largest platform of specialized practitioners focused on skin health and skin empowerment. Join me each week where we go deep into the skin and beyond to hear stories and education from leading practitioners on a journey of skin health. Welcome to the Heal Thy Skin podcast. I'm Marnie, your host, and today I'm speaking with Rebecca Hughes, a leading skin health practitioner at Melbourne Functional Medicine. Rebecca is a functional medicine trained naturopath, and she has a passion for treating skin conditions such as eczema, acne, psoriasis, lupus, cold sores, impetigo, warts, the list goes on. As recognition for her outstanding contribution to her field, Rebecca recently won the 2020 BIMA Award for Clinical Excellence. And since graduating almost two decades ago, Rebecca has combined her clinical practice with pursuits in a range of roles within the natural medicine field, such as lecturing at bachelor degree, uh, nutrition and nutropathy courses, regulating complementary medicines at the Therapeutic Goods Administration, and contributing to national reference texts on herbs and natural supplements. Today, we are talking all things functional medicine. And I must admit, I didn't know a lot about functional medicine until I spoke with Rebecca. And it was a fascinating conversation. First of all, Rebecca explains what functional medicine is and how it can get to the seed of the problem. Many things that we do to treat or help with a condition will certainly help reduce symptoms, but they don't necessarily actually treat the cause. And this means that in functional medicine, the investigative approach is intense. Rebecca explained that her initial consultation is anywhere from three hours upwards. Absolutely incredible. Rebecca shares so much information on these links between our internal health and our external skin health. You're going to absolutely love this conversation with Rebecca. I recommend that you listen right through to the end. And I started by asking Rebecca what she thought was the biggest misconception about treating skin conditions. I think the biggest misconception about treating skin conditions is that it can all exclusively be done from the outside. So, for example, the traditional approach to treating eczema is put steroid creams on the outside. And the traditional approach to dealing with acne is to look at laser treatments, you know, or antibacterial, bactericidal treatments. And even with psoriasis, the mainstay of treatment over many years has never really changed and has been using things like coal tar treatment. And whilst all of those might be valid approaches for symptom management, I don't think any of them are really digging deep into the cause of why this particular person has these particular symptoms. And so I like to combine, you know, a approach of both dealing with those causes and those internal drivers, as well as managing external symptoms. Wonderful. And we're going to hear a little bit more about that today. But tell us about your career and how you started getting involved in functional medicine. Well, Yeah, I mean, I feel like it started a long time ago now. (laughs) And 
I started as a naturopath and I graduated, I think, in 03. And my career has kind of taken a few twists and turns over time. I've always sort of done other things in addition to clinical care. So I've worked in medicine regulation and forming clinical practice guidelines. And I've worked in education a lot throughout the years, both in diploma level qualifications as well as bachelor level qualifications for nutrition and naturopathy. And so then I finally started doing some of my own further study in functional medicine as well. And yeah, that's kind of how I've ended up here. So it's probably not the most predictable trajectory for a naturopath, but it's been good in terms of rounding out my career and what it is that I know and what I can bring to it. Wonderful. And in regards to the differences between functional medicine, the approach and also the conventional medicine approach, you did mention that typically for skin conditions, the traditional medicine route would often treat topically. But what are some of those other key differences that you see? Well, I think what it is, is that it's a highly personalized and unique approach. So rather than treating a condition, so rather than treating psoriasis or treating eczema we're treating someone who has that and that isn't just a conceptual difference that really is digging really deep into someone's medical history into their family's medical history into how how are all the other systems and organs um, in that particular human body functioning or not functioning as the case may be what's the environment which they come from, so their physical environment and as well as their social environment. So what are the things that, what are their accountabilities? What are their stressors? Yeah, it's, it's considering all of that, which sounds like a lot when you're just, if all you're thinking about, oh, well, I've got this itchy rash in my elbows, but, but you never know what could have caused that. So it might have been something from their childhood and their, you know, the type of microbiome that they ended up developing because they had a raft of ear infections that got treated with a whole bunch of antibiotics and now they have a rash. And I don't necessarily know that standard medicine draws those connections. So there's that. And I think there's also a focus on the foundations of health. So not like you can do lots of great testing and lots of great treatments. But until the foundations of health are there, so someone's sleeping properly, they're eating a diet that's appropriate for them, they have a regular physical activity and they're managing their stress levels, they're sort of the key underpinnings of anyone's health, not just someone who's unwell and dealing with a skin condition. So we're, you know, we're constantly reiterating messages around that as well. And, and I suppose I take my approach one step further that I'm not just dealing with what's happening right now for my patients. I'm also in within the functional medicine model, identifying risk factors in the future that may or may not be related to what they're come to see me for. But I think, again, a lot of people are at different levels of health literacy. And also they may not attend regular appointments with their GP any longer. I, I had certainly have a few patients in that basket who don't necessarily use their GPs as primary care physicians as much any longer. And so part of my job, I feel, is to also inform them about what to expect in the future. And do you find that for some of your patients that uh, seeing a functional medicine practitioner is kind of their last option? It's kind of almost the end of the road, like they've exhausted all other options, all other treatments, and then finally they come to see you? 
Yes, I do find that a lot. And so, yeah, we certainly are the last bastion for a lot of our patients. And, you know, that can be... It can be difficult sometimes, particularly if people have been to see a lot of, they've consulted a lot of other physicians. But mostly I find that they may have consulted a lot of other physicians, but it's sort of been the same territory that's been covered over and over again versus I think what functional medicine offers is a new lens through which to regard the human body for starters. And when you've got a new lens and new view, then different possibilities kind of open up. And so we, I find, generally think a little further outside the box in terms of our approach. And therefore, the types of testing and investigations that we do are probably a little bit outside the box as well. Not certainly still evidence-based, but not just the standard approach, not looking in the same places over and over again, because I don't think that's helpful for anyone. Yes, I completely understand. And I can imagine with quite an exhaustive list of questions, uh, and I can imagine that initial investigative approach can be quite different for someone if they've never seen a functional medicine practitioner. And they think, well, what's this got to do with that? Yeah. Now, in regards to addressing skin conditions, what are some of the things that you consider? You mentioned a few of them earlier in regards to diet, well-being, sleep, etc., but do you have a certain pillars or, or some guidelines of the things that you're looking for in someone's health when they first come to see you? Well, certainly I am, you know, like as I talked about before, the foundations of health, I'm certainly looking to see where are they at with that? What are their daily habits and behaviours? I think that's really important. But also even those daily habits and behaviours might be, we, I think it, sometimes in health we have these benchmarks of like that everyone should comply with. It's like, oh, everyone should do 30 minutes of cardiovascular exercise a day and everyone should drink two litres of water and everyone should eat a well-balanced diet that contains this and that. But those sorts of parameters are sort of like there's an ideal human that these parameters match to versus as far as I know, there isn't an ideal human walking around in the world. And particularly people who are quite unwell, you can't necessarily map these standard benchmarks onto their life. And there may be really specific adaptations that need to be made for my patients within those boundaries that actually give them a sense of balance and homeostasis. But beyond that, I suppose with skin conditions specifically, because the skin is an organ of detoxification, I'm certainly always focusing on how are their systems and organs of detoxification functioning in other parts of their body. So for example, do they still have their gallbladder? You know, it's surprising how many people who've had their gallbladder removed and their gallbladder is important for concentrating the bile and squirting that out into the small intestine. It's a natural bactericidal in the small intestine at the proximal part. It also helps you emulsify fats and absorb fat soluble nutrients. So just that alone, like imagine if you couldn't absorb fat-soluble nutrients adequately, that means you can't absorb vitamin A, which is important for skin regeneration and health. You can't absorb vitamin D, which is important for immune modulation. And you can't absorb vitamin E, which is a strong antioxidant that has an affinity for the skin. So just not having a gallbladder can influence your ability to deal with many skin conditions. And then gastrointestinal health specifically, whether people are having bowel motions every day. This is something that functional medicine practitioners talk about a lot. And I'm surprised at how many people don't realize that not having a full and complete bowel motion every day is not really very healthy. You know, that that's actually one of the 
again, the foundations for health is that you're fully evacuating and detoxifying waste products every day. And so that's a system of detoxification. And then there's kidneys, so there's hydration, how well are you filtering? And then even things like lymphatic movement and is there lymphatic stasis? And the lymph vessels are these vessels that run just underneath our skin alongside our veins. And they're also a part of our detoxification. So if we're not moving regularly, because the lymph requires the muscle to move it along, if we're not moving regularly, then detoxification can be impaired there as well. So that's certainly, you know, for people with skin conditions, I think a really important focus to see how all of that's traveling. And then stress management, I find, plays a really big part. I don't actually think it's the, necessarily the cause of many people's skin conditions, but I certainly think it's a really strong factor that can aggravate almost, it can aggravate acne, it can aggravate eczema, it can aggravate psoriasis, just about any condition and probably just about any health condition in reality is aggravated by stress. How fascinating. And with so many different elements to look for, using eczema as an example, how do you actually determine what's specifically influencing a person's skin condition, say eczema? With eczema, I look a lot at someone's history because I usually, eczema is generally the beginning of what's called, and it's a recognized term, I suppose, in dermatology now called the atopic march. And so the atopic march starts with eczema, then usually develops into asthma and then hay fever in later life. So normally children exhibit eczema signs and symptoms fairly early in life, sometimes as early as three months of age. And even if they're breastfed. So I'm usually looking at what was their start in life like? Like, did they, were they a cesarean section baby or were they a natural delivery? Were they breastfed exclusively or was there some introduction of formula? How early were solids introduced? Did they have things like infantile colic and constipation? What sorts of infections? You know, I talked about ear infections before. That's really, really important to look at. What was the early health like? And then what were the interventions that were used if early health wasn't great because all of that signals to me what the how and how the immune system was behaving even back then and then how the immune system has probably been impacted by changes in the microbiome after that so for example if someone is, is exposed to subsequent antibiotics because they have an infection then the subsequent exposure particularly if it's quite rapid can really alter someone's microbiome significantly. It is a little bit like clear filling a forest. You can sometimes wipe out entire species. And our microbiome is very unique to us. We pick it up from our mothers and through the birth canal, but also through skin to skin contact and also from the physical environment in which we grow up. So I even ask questions about what sort of environment did you grow up in? Like, did you have pets? When your parents, when you were in utero, did your mother and your parents have any pets? And were you exposed to pets early in life? Because there's actually a strong correlation between that and atopy. That the more, I suppose, unsanitary environment is, then the better the outcomes are for the microbiome and the better the outcomes are for things like eczema. So that's just... Some of the digging that I do is into the medical history because it gives me an idea of how well their immune system is regulating. And then, like I said, about what's going on with systems and organs of detoxification. So how is liver health and digestive health and kidney health, but also um, 
the barrier integrity of the outside. And I think that's only something that's really just coming to the fore in research with dermatological research around eczema is that it really, that sensitization can happen through the outside if the integrity of the skin has been compromised. And really what that means in simple terms is, is the skin damaged? Is it damaged and is it exposed? And once it's exposed, then people can become sensitized to things that are in their atmosphere, things that are they're putting on their skin. And then they're also really vulnerable to secondary infections like Daph aureus. So taking developing countries, some of the things that you've already mentioned, including breastfeeding and a really clean, hygienic environment. I mean, if I think of any of the mothers in my life, they also always have Dettol at the ready. (laughs) Do you think all of these things are causing a rise in eczema in developing countries as we are seeing more children coming through with eczema? And how are these actually linked? You've kind of explained about that these will certainly affect the individual, but how can these actually cause or induce eczema outbreaks? Well, I suppose if you think about it simply from an evolutionary perspective, our immune system was designed to seek and destroy. Like a a big part of our immune system is designed to protect us against threats in our environment. But progressively, because we've evolved and we've become sophisticated, we have sanitized our environment ongoingly. So it started with we sanitized our water supply, and now to a degree we've sanitized our food system because we're not exposed even to a lot of soil-borne microbes. You know, we eat clean food. And we have developed drugs to protect us against infections in the form of vaccines and antivirals and antibacterials and antifungals. So essentially our innate immunity that's designed to protect us is sort of this idle system. It doesn't really have anything to do anymore. And because we don't get really, really unwell anymore. I mean, typically, except for the current pandemic, of course. And so that's part of our immune system. And then, then that's balanced with the adaptive part of our immune system. And in between that, there are these critical cells called T regulator cells, which are designed to essentially do exactly what they sound like, which is to regulate our immune system between those two branches, essentially. And so what I find is that as the environment becomes more sanitized, then the immune system doesn't have as much to do. And so then the immune system becomes dysregulated and almost hypervigilant, trying to detect threats where there are none. So, and that shows up in the world of atopy, so eczema, and also autoimmunity, for example, psoriasis. And this is, I'm just speaking about skin here, right? So we know that atopy and autoimmunity also show up in other body parts and systems. So I think that's got a lot to do with it. And there is some speculation about even just food processing techniques, because now some foods are processed at very high temperatures, such that it alters the protein structure of that food. And that previously, perhaps our immune system was used to detecting it as a particular entity, but because the immune system, how it determines threat is by detecting proteins, it then gets confused because food processing techniques have altered how that food looks, you know, how it's detected by the immune system. And then I suppose from a microbiome perspective, if we stopped putting things into our body that alter our immune system, they're also influencing our microbiome as well. So, and our microbiome, as we know, 
is now this almost like this organ of its own. I mean, even in our large bowel, I think we just, we've got about, adults have about two kilos of bacteria that just live inside our gut. And that's now what we're seeing in the research performs so many functions, even down to mood, you know, the balance of the microbiota. So I think that also has a big part to play in how our immune system behaves and why we're seeing an increase in both um, allergy, IgE mediated reactions and sensitivity, IgG mediated reactions. And then there's a whole bunch of other reactions that people are having that we can't even, we don't even have the tools and the tests to measure why people are having reactions to them, but they are. And that's, you know, more in the category of things like salicylates, amines and glutamates. How fascinating. And something that you mentioned in specifically about food and then this dysregulation of the immune system, something that you do a lot in your practice is food sensitivity testing. I'd like Mm. to dig in a little bit deeper about that. How exactly is this done? What's involved? Oh, okay. So it's, like I said, food sensitivity testing is definitely not allergy testing. And I think that's really important for people to understand. The allergy testing that's typically done is usually done by an immunologist under controlled conditions, which is where it should be done, usually in a hospital or a clinical environment. And for children, that typically looks like what they call it scratch testing or rast testing, where the skin is pricked and an antigen is rubbed in and they measure the size of the what's called the wheel or the reaction. And that's because IgE reactions cause an immediate response. So there's either a response or there's not. And that's the typical testing that most of my patients have had by the time they come to see me. And that measures immunoglobin E. The testing that I think that doesn't get done in Australia as much, but certainly is performed in the United States more by doctors and physicians, is IgG-mediated food reactions. And how you can do that is with blood and you can do a blood spot or you can do a full blood draw. And that really, I suppose, depends on the patient. But usually because I tend, because eczema tends to be more common in children, I think blood spot is a much less distressing technique to use in children than a full blood draw. And so what that involves is literally pricking the finger like you would for a blood glucose test and then bleeding a few drops of blood out of the finger onto some cartridge paper. Some labs do a slightly different technique where the blood gets, it's still from the finger, but it gets put into a tiny little vial. It doesn't really matter about so much about the collection. It's more that it's the analysis that they're doing is the same. And, and then that blood sample is analysed by the laboratory against a number of different foods, usually. It's mostly foods. And different labs offer different numbers of foods. And so the cost will increase depending on how many foods you want tested, essentially. And then you get a report that says whether you have no moderate or high reactions to these foods. And food sensitivities are usually a delayed and possibly also a cumulative reaction, which is why they're really difficult for people to detect on their own, because the reaction can happen 72 hours later, which is three days, essentially. And then if you think about all the food that you've eaten in those three days, unless you're keeping a very, very rigorous food diary, it's probably quite difficult to discern what you're reacting to, particularly if you have multiple sensitivities, which most people do. If they have food sensitivities, it's very rare that they're just sensitive to one food. So that's how we do the test. It's pretty non-invasive and I've had a lot of paediatric and adult patients perform that test. 
And is this something that you do alongside perhaps other diagnostic tools for eczema or other skin conditions? I would use the same test if I suppose for psoriasis because psoriasis is autoimmunity and also is a sign of immune dysregulation. I'm less likely to use it in acne because I find that acne is more hormonally driven than food driven. If I sometimes food intolerances can be an aggravating cause to the existing inflammation in acne, but I find that it's not the primary thing that's causing the acne. So I, I suppose I tend to use, because you know we talked about things that are triggering the immune system to behave in a strange way, if, Ig, if immunoglobin G is constantly being triggered, it's causing inflammation. So what we want to do is identify all the things and reduce all the things that could possibly be perpetuating an inflammation and causing the immune system to behave in an aberrant way. So I do use it a lot. Yeah. So would you suggest that someone eat a series of all these different types of foods and then they come in for the test? Is that how it goes? Yeah. I tend not to want to alter people's diet at all before I do the testing because I want it to be a really true representation of what their standard diet is because I think you know that's much more useful clinically to look at how they're regularly eating and then the reactions that they're having. And then once we get the results back, then we'll implement an elimination diet. And that's somewhere between sort of two and three months. Usually you should see improvements by about six weeks. But depending on how severe the person's symptoms are, sometimes I do recommend that they actually stay off those foods for the full three months just to give their body enough time to recover because they might have a really, really high level of inflammation and actual damage to their skin. So we need that period of time. And whilst we're doing that, the elimination, we're also repairing the gut. And when I say the gut, I mean specifically the small intestine because the types of skin cells that we have on the outside of our body are very similar to the types of skin cells we have in our, in our intestine, in our esophagus and in our intestine. The difference is on the inside, they're just covered in this nice mucousy protective layer. But you can be guaranteed that if you're having a rash and a skin reaction on the outside, that you're also having a reaction on the inside. So it's really, really important that barrier gets repaired too. So this is why, you know, I think barrier integrity systemically is really important for treating things like eczema and psoriasis, that you have to repair both at the same time. And then you really are beginning to impact how the immune system is behaving. There is so much there. I have so many questions to ask you <laughs> on psoriasis, more about the microbiome, about pathogens. But I'd just like to ask this question because I have heard about food testing and things where someone may present a sensitivity, obviously is different to someone having an allergy, but mm -hmm. do they sometimes that a sensitivity is not lifelong, that it could be, they could be sensitive one day and several years later that they may not be? Yeah, Absolutely. And I think it's the same with allergy. And by the way, what I didn't say earlier is that some people can have IgE and IgG reactions going on at the same time. So that's often why people say, oh, but I've had the allergy testing and I took those foods out and my eczema still hasn't improved. Why mm -hmm. hasn't improved? And it's because they just have missed identifying the food sensitivities as well as the food allergies. So it's not impossible to have both going on at the same time. I think that's an important message. And also then both of them can subside over time. So we all heard people say, oh, I used to have a nut allergy, but now I've grown out of it, you know, or I can tolerate a small amount, but I can't eat a whole bag of nuts. 
you know, and so it's the same for food sensitivities. What I find is that once you have reordered the immune system and reminded it how it's supposed to behave, then what we do after that is we actually methodically reintroduce one food at a time and see how the body is now reacting to that food. Because there's, there's no other way to really test that in, except in the human body who's currently experiencing it. And I can't predict how it's going to go. For some people, we reintroduce some foods and there's absolutely no reaction anymore to that food. And then, for, and then you introduce a different food and they can't even have, you know, a tablespoon of milk. Even a tablespoon of milk will cause a massive reaction. So we then know that it's like, well, we can't introduce that food yet. And so it really, I think what's good about food sensitivity testing is that it really gives people the knowledge and the power as well about why their body is behaving the way it's behaving and then how they can ongoingly manage that and then go, right, okay, it's been a year now. I want to see if I can tolerate milk. So yeah, I think certainly people do develop tolerance over time, but it really is, it's so unique and completely unpredictable. Yeah, how fascinating. When I was an early teen, I developed a sensitivity to egg. I never went for any formal testing, but I knew it was egg because every time I would eat egg, I would experience some symptoms. So I avoided egg for about five years. And then someone introduced a duck egg to me. They said, oh, well, you haven't had eggs in five years or so. Eat a duck egg. And I did. And I didn't get any symptoms. And from then on, I've been completely fine with eggs. But it's just so interesting how our body can adapt. And there was no treatment or anything. It was just I avoided it for several years. And whatever happened within my body, I can now tolerate eggs and eat as many as I'd like. And lucky <laughs> because I love a good scrambled egg with some avo. So and look, we never know why also, by the way, that those things happen. Mm. So for example, this, and it's, it's quite rare, but there is an anaphylaxis that some adults have developed later in life. And it's a cross reactivity that's caused by tick bites. And I mean, that's highly unusual and certainly not everyone would be exposed to ticks. In fact, only in certain probably locations around Australia, would you be at risk of tick exposure? But the fact that the immune system launches a response where then to try and deal with the tick toxin, but in the process starts to cross react and cross recognize other antigens as the tick toxin. And so then they've started to develop anaphylaxis to foods that they've never had reactions to before. So I think it's all in line with your immune system trying to do a good job, but it's just not a perfect system. It just is so, I mean, no wonder people aren't finding solutions to their concerns because if you were to ask someone, did you have a tick bite, mm. you know, decades ago, it's pretty unlikely that they're going to remember that. So it's so investigative in nature and I don't know how long your initial consultations are or how many questions they are, but I can imagine them being relatively lengthy. My initial consultation is four hours. Wow. Yeah. And look, not all of that is interviewing the patient, but about half of it is. And then the rest of the time is spent on explanations and education because that is also a big part of functional medicine is educating our patients ongoingly about their body so that they can start to get their hands on the levers and the dials of what's going on with their body and understand it and being able to manipulate it themselves rather than constantly being reliant on medication, whatever that medication is. It doesn't really matter whether the medication's natural or pharmaceutical. Ultimately, most people want to be able to understand what's going on with their body so that they can be hopefully medication-free in the future. 
So that's, yeah, that's part of what happens in the first consultation as well. There's a lot of explaining and educating. Mm, and then investment in time is, is so important for that long-term, mm. I guess, benefit and actually finding what the root cause is so that it can either be treated. So as you mentioned, some people can come off their medication, which might be their ultimate goal, mm. rather than just managing the symptoms of a condition. Yeah. So when it comes to psoriasis, you mentioned psoriasis before. What's your typical approach for those with psoriasis? Psoriasis is quite unique, I find, because in usually what I find in someone's history is that the psoriasis usually just appeared one day. This is with adults. I find that it's not really a gradual onset condition. And I'm, very, I'm being very general at the moment. Some people do have gradual onset psoriasis, but a lot of people, it tends to come on quite rapidly. And usually in response to some kind of stressful event. And the stressful event can be emotional. It might be an accident. For example, they, have it, they get involved in a really bad accident and the stress of the accident. It could be the stress of an infection is often involved as well. So it's some kind of fairly high stressor that seems to be part of the originating event in psoriasis. Now, obviously, we can't undo time and we can't go back in time. So, But I think it's indicative of the physiology of psoriasis because usually people with psoriasis report that when I am stressed, my psoriasis is out of control. So I think that's a really critical part of managing psoriasis is actually getting, I think, you know, my patients have to get really honest with themselves about their stress levels and how they manage it and how they're going to go and also getting real with themselves that this is probably going to be something that they need to be responsible for ongoingly is managing their stress levels in their life, which is, you know, I mean, that's not a terrible outcome anyway, because managing your stress levels has so many other benefits for so many other health outcomes, but it does include behavioral change, right? And so behavioral change is typically what humans are not great at and, and we resist anything to do with changing our habits and behaviors but it certainly is possible. So I think that's one part of psoriasis. I think there's also, like I said, there's immune regulation and dysregulation. So treating it from that perspective and reminding the immune system what it's, how it's supposed to behave. So that can be from a nutritional perspective. You know, we know that, we know that vitamin D is really critical for immune regulation and we know the microbiome is critical for immune regulation. Just to touch on briefly also vitamin D, it reminds me of some of the other testing that I do, which is in some patients I do genetic testing. And mostly that's to discover, like, do they have anything that's in the way for them to, that's going to get in the way of the treatment? Like, do they have any genetic susceptibilities? And some people do have what's called a polymorphism or mutation on, it's a SNP called VDR, which means that they can't absorb and utilize vitamin D as effectively as other people who don't have it. So it can simply be things like that, that people have genetic mutations. And so, and that's good stuff to know because you could give someone all the vitamin D in the world and still be wondering why their vitamin D scores aren't climbing or maybe just moving by like five increments at a time. And so and so there's ways to get around that. There's ways you can optimize vitamin D absorption. You can even get vitamin D injections if your genetics so poor that you just really can't absorb and utilize vitamin D. But, you know, that's important information to have. And again, I don't think that it's the, you know, the normal, the natural, the logical place to look. So that's just a bit of a side conversation. But I think that's involved with psoriasis. And also, again, different types of infections in the plaques themselves can create endotoxins which then perpetuates the inflammation. 
So again, it's not just about dealing with one or the other. So you can put stuff on the plaques or, and you can deal with what's happening internally, but probably just doing only one isn't going to get satisfactory resolution for people. Mm, so let's talk about those pathogens that may inhibit the healing process a little bit more. What can be done about them and how can we identify them as well? Because they may not always be visible. It may not be something that we initially test mm, for. Yeah, yeah. Well, the literature reports that staph and strep can be in both eczema or psoriasis. But what we see mostly, like in general terms, is that Eczema lesions tend to have more staph overgrowth and psoriasis lesions tend to have more strep overgrowth. Now, what's interesting about that is that strep is also, you know, the bacteria that's involved with tonsillitis. And so when you look in someone's history with psoriasis, you will often find that there's someone who dealt with strep throat a lot in early life or even don't have their tonsils anymore because of that. So there's that correlation there where you can start to see a systemic imbalance in the microbiota. And then also what I see with eczema that sometimes gets overlooked is that it isn't always just bacteria that's in the eczema, or it could be something else. So some people have secondary complications with yeast infections in their eczema plaques. So you can either swab or test for it, but also what you can do is just use an antifungal agent and see if the inflammation starts to subside. So use an antifungal exclusively without using antibacterials and then see whether the inflammation starts to disappear. And I think that, again, that's another thing that gets missed a lot in practice is combinations or complex infections like involving more than one pathogen. So that's eczema and psoriasis. And then, you know, I suppose I, while we're talking about pathogens and bacteria on skin, we sort of have to go toward acne in a way, don't we? Because again, that's the model of medicine is that it's an overgrowth of propionum bacterium acnes is what's causing most people's acne. Now, again, I think it's the endotoxins, not the bacteria itself that's causing the inflammation. And I don't think it's responsible for everyone's acne. I certainly think some people's acne is aggravated by an overgrowth of P. acnes and the endotoxins that go with it. But I would say of all the patients that I've treated with acne, only a handful have responded to antibacterials. Most of them don't. And in fact, usually the antibacterials just mess up their gut and cause lots of other secondary complications. But some people do, and maybe even some topical antibacterials can be beneficial in some people's acne management. But I certainly think that it's a much more, I think it's an overly simplistic approach to blame one bacterial strain for all acne that is in the world. And with respect to other pathogens and other skin conditions, some people come to me and they have just accepted that they have chronic yeast infections in their skin. And they've been told that, oh, that's just the way it is. You seem to just be predisposed to yeast infections. And I don't think that people are naturally predisposed to yeast infections. I think that there's some kind of imbalance that needs to be investigated further as to why someone's skin seems to be, or why why someone in general it seems to be more susceptible to an opportunistic microbe like yeast because really that does indicate immune susceptibility and you can be guaranteed that if there's yeast overgrowing on the outside that it's not just there that it's probably happening in their you know systemically and most likely their digestive system as well so i think it's yeah things like tinea and pityriasis versicola and all of those yeast-based skin infections 
I think whilst they might seem simplistic again on the outside, I think there's a lot more that could be done for those people rather than just continually giving them antifungals. Mm, and as you mentioned at the very beginning, we are all different. There is mm. not one type of human that requires one type of treatment. And I really like that you talk about having a multifactorial treatment plan because many conditions often are multifactorial as well. Mm. Now I'd like to shift gears a little bit and talk more a little bit about your practice and what you do. And I always love to hear about people's favorite case studies because it I guess is relatable, but it also puts everything that we've talked about into practice. Yeah, of course. I suppose one of my favorite case studies that I will always remember it, and he's a teenage boy. He, his mum brought him to see me. And I suppose what's important information in the case is that he was on the spectrum. And one of the things that we know that's quite characteristic of people on the spectrum, particularly kids, is that they tend to have a lot of intestinal permeability or leaky gut and constipation. So there seems to be problems with motility and function as well as inflammation. And so he was covered from his neck to his ankles in eczema. I actually probably haven't seen a case of eczema that bad since. And he had scars behind his knees from all of the scratching because try and tell any child to stop scratching or any person for that matter, when you've got extreme eczema, telling someone to stop scratching is almost a useless recommendation because they are in a great deal of discomfort. So he had all these scars behind his knees and, in, and on his neck as well because he would get it in the folds of his neck. And of course, his sleep wasn't great because, you know, when you're itching all the time and itching in your sleep, you're not a happy human being. Not at all. And so we did a lot of work around in, improving bowel motions. So making sure that he was starting to experience regular daily, soft, easy to pass bowel motions. You know, that made a really big difference. But I think the really big difference for him was food sensitivity testing. Nothing like that had ever been explored for him. And so when we did the food sensitivity testing, it came out that he had, he had sensitivity to some nuts, but the really big thing was dairy. Dairy was the really big thing which was, you know, challenging at first because ice cream was pretty much his favourite food. <laughs> so <laughs> we had to find alternatives. But when we were able to take that away, like even in just eight weeks, eight weeks of taking dairy away, saw this incredible improvement of irritation and itching on his skin. And then within, I think it was four months, he had no new eczema. And he was still healing. His skin was still healing because you've got to think he'd had, you know, 17 years, pretty much he'd had eczema since he was an infant, basically. And I thought, you know, that was outstanding. And it was even good for him to see that, you know, because he did have a little bit of between the six week mark and the four month mark. He did take some steps backwards because he was just adamant that he was going to eat ice cream and that nobody could stop him. And then he saw the impact. Like as soon as he ate the ice cream within a couple of days, he was really itchy and irritated all over again. And so then he could start to self-manage it and go, oh, you know, he made the connection. It's like, when I eat that, I feel like this. So I think that's what's great about food sensitivity testing is that it sort of takes the mystery out of it. Because I think up until that point, there's usually a lot of mystery as to why do I feel this way? So that was certainly a great victory 
And I just, I realized I forgot to say something earlier as well about infants who have eczema. With food sensitivities, they can actually be passed through breast milk. So even if a child is exclusively breastfed and is still having eczema, it, sometimes what I do is I test the child and I implement the food restrictions with the mother because with both of them, actually, because they might be on a mix of solids and breast milk, but it's but both the, the parent, both the mother and the child have to do the food eliminations. And that's usually when you start to see the good results. And then in relation to acne, I've got a, I've, I suppose I've got a few really favorite case studies with acne, but one of them that I really like is a, again, a young woman, she's in her mid twenties when she came to see me. And she was on, she just finished her third round of Roaccutane, which is not unusual anymore. And I wish that were the exception and not the norm, but I'm quite surprised at how many prescriptions of Roaccutane are written these days, given how serious that drug is in terms of the impacts that it has on the human body. And, and so, yeah, she was quite exasperated. She just finished her third course of Roaccutane and she was currently again into a second long-term course of antibiotics. And she just wasn't getting what she wanted, which was, she wanted resolution. She wanted the acne to go away. And so I haven't talked about this much, but one, I do another test that I use a lot of, and, you know, people can go and look it up for themselves. It's called the Dutch urine hormone test. It's a very, very complicated test from the respect of interpreting the results because what it's telling us, which is distinct from blood hormone test results, is that it's telling us how those different hormones are dealt with and metabolized and excreted by the body. So you actually get a lot of data points which are useful to understand where there might be any blockages. And sometimes those blockages are due to enzyme insufficiencies. And, and then also it tells us about the dance between ovarian hormones and adrenal hormones like cortisol because there's certainly an interplay between between those two areas so we did that testing for her and it showed that she had we knew that she sort of we had elevated she had elevated testosterone we already knew that from her blood work but what the test told us actually is that she her testosterone was converting into what's called 5-alpha DHT which is a really, really potent form of testosterone. And there's stuff you can do about that. It's the same type of testosterone that causes benign prostatic hyperplasia in men and really early balding in men and sometimes balding in women as well, or hair thinning in women is the same hormone that's responsible for that. And then once you know it's that, this is the good thing, you can give the intervention that's appropriate for that. So, so some of those things are like saw palmetto and nettle root and zinc. But she also had relatively low progesterone compared to estrogen. So her body wasn't excreting estrogen very well. And her progesterone was probably being used for stress hormones because she was in a very, very stressful role at the time. So we talked a lot about that from an educational perspective about the, it's called the pregnenolone steel, where the precursor to progesterone is used up in making cortisol in the stress hormones. And so there's none of it left over for making progesterone. So that's a really good educational point as well. People can actually see it on the page and go, oh, I can understand. And then as a result, she actually changed her job. And so the treatment along with lifestyle changes have made a permanent change and she no longer has acne. And she just, if anything starts to recur, she can manage it a little bit with some dietary stuff and by moderating her stress levels. But last I checked, there'd been no recurrence of acne. Wow, how incredible. And mm. I mean, I can imagine those lifestyle changes can be quite difficult. And I'm guessing that you 
sometimes have an ongoing battle with some clients to, (laughs) if they want changes, they need to change their diet and things like that. Do you have some certain practices or common things that you do to help people change those habit things? Do you change small things at a time or generally do people go completely cold turkey? What's your general approach? Well, firstly, I'm really lucky because I work with a health coach as well. So my patients have not just support from me, but they have ongoing support from a health coach as well. So I think that's really, really useful for the people that come to see me because I can have all sorts of great ideas about what I think they ought to do from a health and lifestyle perspective, but how to implement those, as you've pointed out, can sometimes be really challenging. So there's that additional support. And then also, you know, it really is important to meet people where they're at. You know, different people are in different stages of change about and readiness about what they're willing to do about their health, which is, it really does depend on who's in front of me because some people are quite driven, they're like, they're ready. And also it depends how exasperated and frustrated they are, I think as well, because if you have reached the end of the line, sometimes you're willing to do anything about of what it's going to take. So there's, yeah, there's readiness for change, I think is a big deal about where people are. And, and so we might start out gradually with some people who are a little bit uncertain and then build up over time. And so that can look like with food elimination going, okay, well, let's just choose the two or three really big ones and start there. And then once you've incorporated those changes into your diet, then we'll start to take out some of the moderate reaction Based foods and see how you cope with that. With hydration, I think there's lots of tips and strategies. It really, again, depends on what's going to work for your patient. So for some people, I talk about there's some apps that you can use. For other people, it's about getting a finite bottle of, you know, that they know that there's 1.5 litres or two litres in that bottle and making sure that they finish that bottle every day. That empowers some people. It really does depend, you know, on the individual. There are stress adaptation techniques that we use and we think you know that's pretty important and I think that's tied up very closely with sleep and I am that would be the one area that I think people tend to compromise on a lot I've noticed is that they really do sacrifice their sleep as and it's I think they're you know I would have to say that it's shortchanging yourself to sacrifice sleep because sleep is where repair happens and it's where your immune system resets it's where repair and rejuvenation happens. So if you're someone who's dealing with a skin condition, you've got an extra need for repair compared to someone who isn't. You actually have to build more skin cells than a person who has healthy skin. So sleep is really, really critical for that process. Like if you ever think when you're sick or if you've ever had a surgery or something like that, your need for sleep is so much higher because your body is trying to repair itself. So I think, again, with I think it gets underestimated the toll that having a skin condition can take on your body of all the extra energy and nutrition that's required to repair that damaged skin. Mm, Really good point and something Mm. that we often don't think about or talk about either. Where are we getting sleep so wrong? What is it about our sleep hygiene? Is it, I mean, I'm sure it's a combination of factors, but what are some simple things that people could do that most of us are getting wrong in order to get better sleep. Should we be turning off that alarm? How do we manage that? Oh, I think the main culprit is technology. I think people are very addicted to devices 
And I usually find that's the greatest challenge. And I have a standard recommendation of no devices, hopefully including televisions, but no tablets, phones, computers, TVs, one hour before a scheduled bedtime. And also having a fairly scheduled bedtime. Like, you know, our diurnal rhythm is a rhythm. And if you start to interrupt it and play with it and go to bed early one night and late the next and, you know, I mean, if you've ever known someone who's a shift worker, you know how much they struggle with the changing nature of their their sleep habit and their daily life. So they'll definitely tell you what the impacts are. But everything is dictated by the diurnal rhythm. Your appetite is dictated by it, as are even your bowel motions. So the whole thing is it's all linked up. So I think having a regular go to sleep and wake up time and also getting yourself disconnected from devices and technology makes a really, really big difference. And the reason for that is, is that it's all about light. So it's not just light, there's light from the devices and also being in a low lit environment at nighttime, because really that's the time when cortisol is dropping off and melatonin is supposed to be climbing and melatonin is the sleep hormone. But the more you are stimulated, like doing something that's stimulating, um, like reading, you might be reading something that's really challenging material or watching something on TV that's really tense or dramatic or, you know, you know, engaging with social media and things like that. It's all stimulating your brain for starters. And then when you're on a device, it's projecting blue light toward your eyes. And then that's sending a whole number of chemical signals, which basically tell your body that it's daytime. I mean, that's how they get battery hens to lay more eggs is by messing with their sleep-wake cycles. So we're kind of like battery hens and messing with our own sleep-wake cycle. But really at nighttime, we should be winding down in a dimly lit environment. And then as that sleep wave arises, riding the wave and going to sleep. And I think that's another thing that a lot of people are used to overriding is going, oh, I feel a bit sleepy, but... I still have this to do, this to do, this to do, and this to do. And so it's, as you can see, there's a number of different habits and behaviors that need to be adapted. And that, that doesn't just happen overnight, which is also why, and I probably didn't speak to you before, is that I see patients for six months. And that's the only way that they can engage with me to start with is, is um, in six monthly programs. And that's because it's not just about me altering the hormones and improving the microbiome and doing all the stuff that I know how to do. It is about, it, it's life altering, essentially. Like it's altering how you eat, how you drink, how you sleep, how you manage your stress, how you interact with your environment. All of those things get altered over that program. And that's what has the change stay. That's what has the resolution stay is because our patients get to learn so much about themselves that they can keep that change alive in their life. Mm, I absolutely love that. It's like a reset. I mean, if we've mm. been doing the same thing, having the same sleep patterns, the same food patterns for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, we're not going to see changes immediately. And certainly if we want to see long-term changes, that, that thing of forming habit, I think it used to be six, oh, 28 days and now they're saying it might be more like 200 days to form a habit depending on the individual so mm. i love that commitment from both provider side but also for the patients that come to see you as well mm. now if someone's listening and they're thinking oh functional medicine might be something that i need to look into do people need a referral to see a functional medicine practitioner 
No, no. We are, I'm a naturopath who's trained in functional medicine. So just like if you want to see anyone like that, you can self-refer. So there's no referral required. So Rebecca, where can we find more about you and the work that you do? I'm practicing at Melbourne Functional Medicine. So that's the website is www.melbournefunctionalmedicine.com.au. And I also have my own website, which is www.naturalskinmedicine.com.au, where people can go and look at, you know, case studies and before and afters and blog posts and things like that and just see some results. And Melbourne Functional Medicine also has the Instagram handle at MelbourneFXMed. Wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing so much information today. I mean, I could just continue asking you questions for hours, but you've got a day of patience and and we also need to wrap this up. But thank you just for sharing an insider's perspective of functional medicine and how it can be so effective at getting to the root cause of many skin conditions. Thank you. Thank you. What a fascinating conversation. I absolutely loved speaking with Rebecca and hearing her immense knowledge in so many different arenas, not just in our general health and well-being, but also our skin health as well and these many, many intricacies. My three deeper-than-skin insights that stood out to me were, number one, functional medicine. I must admit, I didn't know a lot about it before speaking with Rebecca, but I have a lot better understanding about it. And I and I hope you have as well. And just really interesting, that investigative approach that, yes, it takes longer. Yes, it's sometimes slower. And yes, I must admit, sometimes it is important to be treating the symptom because a symptom can be really uncomfortable, painful. It can give us a visible difference, which makes us feel different in the world. So absolutely, there is a time and a place for treating the symptom. But I just found it really fascinating the way that Rebecca really gets to the seed of the problem. So it's a long lasting change. And yes, it takes time, but we must admit many of these conditions that we experience sometimes can be progressive and they can happen over a long period of time. And sometimes they're a symptom of something else that is happening within. So just really a different perspective on how we can view skin health. Number two, food intolerances. I mean, we have covered this a little bit on the epi- on different podcast episodes before, Uh, However, it is really interesting to note that there can be lots of different skin conditions that may be linked to a food intolerance and not necessarily cause, but certainly aggravate. If you have experienced any of the symptoms that Rebecca was talking about and you're not finding relief in some traditional therapies, then it may be worth looking at some sensitivity testing, whether it be food or environmental type factors. And number three, uh, some pathogens that can inhibit the healing process. So Rebecca talked about staph. She talked about um, finding staph in eczema and sometimes psoriatic plaques and different types of funguses and yeast as well. So this wouldn't usually be the standard route to be testing the actual plaques for certain types of pathogens, but it's a really interesting way. And I'd like to... um, dig a little bit deeper into this and see if it might be something 
more of the future, that we are looking at some of the pathogens on the skin. And I, and I think there is a direction going that way, considering that we're seeing more uh, probiotic skincare products, and we are recognizing the many types of flora that is existing on our skin as well. So it's a quite an exciting space to watch. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed uh, bringing it to you. I'd love for you to share this episode with someone that you think that may be able to benefit. So screenshot while you're, your phone, while you're listening to this episode, tag us on social media, send it to a loved one, a friend, a colleague, and we'll see you or you'll hear from us again next week, Tuesday mornings on the Heal Thy Skin podcast. Until then, be skin powered.